0: Welcome back to Season 11, Episode 35 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, where we bring you the extraordinary lectures for the Dr. SF Experience 2023 held in San Francisco in partnership with the University of California, San Francisco. My name is Dr. Stefano Bini, and I will be your host for the podcast. In our next episode, we're we'll going to hear first from Zeev Kane, who's the moderator for this session, and then from Amit Kunti. Amit is going to talk to us about making the transition to value value-based care, and comes to us from McKinsey. Please join me as we welcome Amit to the Doctors' have Stage.
1: Thank you, Stefano. First of all, congratulations for a wonderful conference. I learned a lot. And I uh, just said to Dr. Vail that my challenge is now to implement some of it, because that's the challenge coming from a conference like this. My name is Yves Kane. As Stefano said, I am the founder of the Orthopedic Value-Based Care Conference. I'm actually an anesthesiologist and this concept, I got interested in value-based care when I was the chief medical officer of UC Irvine Health. Fell in love with it and started the conference series. And we have a presentation to be followed by a panel. So I'm going to start with the presentation and Amit, can you please introduce yourself?
2: Hi everybody. Thanks for being here, and thank you, Stefano and Zeev, for the invitation. Excited to talk to you all today. So my name is Amit Kunte. I'm a partner from McKinsey & Company from our Los Angeles office. I'm a infectious disease physician by background. Don't hold that against me, but I've spent about the last eight years at McKinsey, and I lead our work on specialty value-based care. And so we've got a group of folks across clinicians, operators, technologists, who focus on both knowledge development as well as client service in value based care. And I know we have a panel, a really great panel that's going to look, get very deep into orthopedics. But before we did that, wanted to just take some time, take a step back, and share our perspectives on value based care more broadly, uh, specifically specialty based models, just as context for that discussion. So, in the next 15 minutes or so, there's four main points I want to make. Number one, The pace of value-based care adoption is increasing. We think it's here to stay. There's been a lot of talk, but we think sort of the tipping point is here. It's here to stay. The pace of adoption is accelerating, and there's a lot of value to be had for physicians. Second, specialty-focused models, we think, will account for about 50% of the value from value-based care overall. It's an incredible amount of value creation. Third, musculoskeletal models have been and will continue to be poised To be leaders in specialty value based care adoption. The fourth is the potential is huge, but the capabilities needed to deliver on this value proposition are today distributed across the ecosystem. That's a big challenge, but it's also a big opportunity for organizations or individuals that want to integrate these capabilities and create platforms that deliver value. So those are the four points. We'll look at a few kind of examples that illustrate. Before diving in though, just maybe like two minutes of context. What do we mean when we say value based care? So for the purposes of the next 15 or so minutes, when I refer to value based care, I'm talking about business models and payment models that align incentives across the ecosystem for outcomes and for cost. So starting from the left here, you have your traditional fee for service payment. Next step up is transferring some of the risk For outcomes or for cost from payers to some other entity with a bonus payment, typically 10 to 15 percent of the total payment. So relatively small based on some metrics. The next two models, the upside or shared savings models, as you move to the right, this is where you're measuring today's cost of care to some historic benchmark and then splitting the difference. In an upside only model, the entity contracting with the payer would only get an upside, no risk, but get less of the reward, right? As you start taking risk in two-sided models where you have some skin in the game, you can claim more of the upside. Capitation models that are the last two to the right here are models where the payer is essentially delegating a portion of the premium to the risk-bearing entity, whether it's a provider or some other entity. So here, the risk has shifted completely from the payer. You as the entity taking the risk can capture more of the reward. And then you'll see that in the ovals on the right. And you can do this either on just the spend specific to a specialty. So it can be only on professional spend. It can only be an orthopedic spend, for example, or you can do it on complete cost of care. And we'll talk a bit about which model applies where. So again, just grounding on what we mean by value based care. Most of the penetration today is in the lower risk model. So again, very quickly. Today, we think about 80 to 100 million lives are in some form of value-based care arrangement. So It's about a quarter of insured lives. Quite big, and we think that's going to go up to about half of insured lives in the next five years. So about 150 million lives. Most of these, though, are in the models towards the left of that previous slide. Not real risk sharing, right? I would say downside risk sharing is in about 10 to 20% of that 80 to 100 million, but it's growing much faster. What we've done here is said, okay, if you take the value creation potential, cost reduction potential from value-based care, and you were a company that did that, what would your enterprise value be? And it's a trillion dollars. So that, there's a trillion dollars of enterprise value creation to be had here. About half to two three-fourths of that is with contracts that will happen with physicians, and either physicians or entities that support physicians in generating that value. So huge value opportunity for physicians. So. What about specialty specific models, right? So there are primary care specific models that you've seen a lot about. What about specialty models? So what this slide does is it takes total spend, total specialist driven spend, which is about a trillion dollars of the two and a half or so trillion dollars of total medical spend. And the top six specialties account for about 70% of that. And what we've done is looked at the value creation opportunity from addressing variation in spend it's about $7 to $9 billion without even accounting for newer innovation. So top six specialties account for a significant amount of that value creation potential. Which of these specialties is suitable for value-based care? We think there's three main things, where there's high cost, care is concentrated under a single attributable or accountable provider, and there's mature clinical models. Orthopedics checks all three boxes. And so that's why you see orthopedics towards the left-hand side of this where we're looking at sort of the relative adoption of value-based care across specialties. There's two other points I want to make here. The two other things that drive adoption here, in addition to those characteristics, are where have there been CMMI models that have driven the specialty? You've seen that in nephrology. We saw that in oncology. There's a bunch of models in orthopedics. That typically also drives private payer interest and then investment in the space, which you see in all the companies over there. So this is this is a pattern we've seen across multiple specialties. So clearly potential, clearly we're seeing adoption. What are the models across specialties? And there's so many different, whether is it shared savings, is it total cost of care based? How does that play out? So this is a framework we use to sort of think about what is the right way across specialties. And it really hinges on what is the role of the specialist in the care journey? So there's cases where the specialist becomes the patient's primary provider. Think of a late-stage kidney disease patient and their nephrologist. In those cases, a longitudinal total cost-of-care-based model makes sense, right? Because that specialist can really manage the total spend of that patient, and we see that. that those are the common models in nephrology. There are situations where the specialist really convenes the patient and orchestrates the journey of the patient, but for a discrete period of time. Think of a cancer patient being worked up and then going through induction. And in those cases, you can think of a total cost of care based model where, again, the specialist is at risk for total cost, but for a limited period. So the OCM episodes are a good example of that for the, like, the oncology care model. The third is where the specialist is making critical decisions on treatment course, therapeutic choice but it's not convening the full care journey. And this is where specialty spend models make sense. And that can either be the specialist involved in specific episodes of care, like your joint replacements, or more fragmented and continuous involvement. So you you can have either episodic specialty-specific models or what we call specialty spend delegation, so that you essentially carve out orthopedic spend, for example, to that specialist. I would argue that sort of number three is the model that makes the most sense in orthopedics, and it could be either episodic or specialty spend delegation. And, you know, again, we see that in the adoption curve. So the next point here is where is musculoskeletal today? So won't be surprising to anybody here, top of mind for employers and payers in kind of national benefit surveys always shows up as top and the highest specialty that's ranked in the top three by employers. So that is why there have been multiple attempts at creating and deploying value-based care models in orthopedics. You've got CJR, you've got BPCI programs. And in general, these programs have created value, the $146 million in gross savings in the first two years of CJR. But then when all is said and done, when you kind of account for all the bonuses and reconciliation payments that CMS makes, it was $17 million in the first two years. So good start, not transformative in terms of net savings to the system. And this has been seen pretty consistently. CJR was one example. The ESCO model in in dialysis, same thing. Same thing with the oncology care model. Then the reasons are nuanced and vary, but in general, all the value hasn't been unlocked. All the savings seen in CJR, everybody here will know, were post-acute care. We haven't yet been able to unlock the full spectrum of value creation and really fully align incentives. This chart sort of highlights why and what you might do about it. So what we did here is took orthopedic spend, segmented into episodes, took the top 20 episodes that account for about 70 to 80% of cost, and then looked at what are the causes of variation across them. And there are some are condition-based as well as procedural episodes in here. So you'll see that lowest line, sniff to home health, ton of value there, it's 3% of total variation. The biggest bucket is treatment selection. It's whether or not the procedure happens and procedure choice. And the traditional approaches of procedural episodes where the measurements gets triggered at when the procedure happens, don't let you address that, right? You have to go upstream. And so that's where episodes that are based on conditions or diagnoses, like basing your program on a back pain diagnosis or knee pain diagnosis versus a procedure can help you get at, you're essentially going upstream and including that treatment selection lever in your contract. To unlock the full value, we're going to need to go upstream off that treatment step. What that means is you need to integrate across a much larger ecosystem because now you suddenly have PCPs, you have a whole host of other non-surgical interventions, and you need to integrate information across to really both create as well as deploy care pathways. So, This leads to the last point, which is that to really unlock the value of value-based care, there's kind of a pretty holistic set of capabilities needed, right? We'll actually start with number three on the bottom right here, the clinical care model. If you think of that as the kind of anchor around that, you then need the infrastructure to sort of make treatment decisions, provide wraparound care. You need to integrate that into practice operations. You need the capabilities to contract and to track outcomes. That's the financial and risk management. And lastly, and very, very importantly, you need to engage patients. Because again, if you're going upstream, you need to be able to navigate and activate patients. If you look at where those capabilities are today, they're actually pretty distributed. So in the columns here are stakeholders across the MSK landscape, starting with practices, You have PT, benefit managers, MSOs, et cetera. And the rows are the practices. If you just map out, okay, who has what it takes, it's pretty distributed. And so the point here is the answer is to bring this all together. You can do it either with partnership, you can do it within the same organization, capability, building, whatever. But the gap is bringing it all together. And that's where information, interoperability, and partnerships come in. And I think that's where we'll spend a lot of our time.
1: So brilliant presentation. Now, let's assume for a second I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I look at it and I get depressed a little bit. What's the upside for me
2: as an orthopedic surgeon in all of this? That's a really, really good question. And I think one of the big questions here is how do you transition providers from a fee-for-service model into a value-based care model when you're actually decreasing utilization? And I'll make a couple of points. One is that at the end of the day, you are going to see by reducing cost of care, and taking a share of the upside, you are going to see an increase in sort of what you as an orthopedic surgeon see in your income, right? And when we've modeled this across specialties, it it can be as much as 30 to 40%, much more so in others. Second point is... Sorry, how are you going to see an increase? I
1: know how to operate. You just told me I have to operate less because that's where the money is, right? Yeah. So if I operate less, how am I going to see an increase in my income? Yeah,
2: so... What you're doing is very simply, just if we take conceptually, what we're doing is you're reducing high-acuity care, right? You're reducing high-acuity care at higher cost sites. So call it $15,000 for a procedural intervention, off which you as a physician were getting $1,000, $2,000 in professional fees. You reduce that acute intervention, if you just reduce the cost of that by by even one-third, you've created $5,000. And if you get half of that, that's $2,500, okay? Right? So I think that the that, point- That, is, of course, depends on who owns the bundle.
1: Yes. Who is the owner and how do they decide where the money goes?
2: That's right. And, you know, you as a physician, if you had the right capabilities, you could own the full bundle or you could be part of a system that owns the bundle. Yeah. So I think that, that's one point, right? That, number one, there is economic upside. Number two, I would say that this is a situation where, like, if you look at where kind of national health expenditure is, it's unsustainable you're going to see kind of movements on utilization.
1: No, I, I understand, but that's not, I think, what the crowd wants to hear, right? <laughs> I think mean, that's like the American flag in an apple pie. That's fantastic.
0: Thank you for listening to the Digital with Peace podcast. Hopefully you found these talks instructive and topical. Please share them with your friends and leave us a nice review on your podcast player choice. It would mean a lot to us if you did.